0: General, the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales, possibly the most famous part of this poem, and really one of the great tour de force uh, in our literature. Because in this prologue, Chaucer sets up the frame for his set of framed narratives, in such a way as to create a double or even a triple dramatic and ironic possibility. Whenever you read a tale, I'm gonna invite you to come back to the prologue and read the description of the character who is telling the tale. Because there's always a relationship between the teller and his tale. And there often is an amusing or ironic one and Chaucer is very interested in that. Another possible connection, of course, is the dramatic possibility here created of a kind of interchange among the pilgrims uh, in the general prologue themselves. This is a second layer of dramatic possibility. And you will see that uh, Chaucer exploits this to the full. Many of our narrators have a sense of the tale as guided missile, so to speak. That is, the friar is mad at the Sumner, so he tells a tale about Summers. Sumners, this must be a real zinger. The Sumner, in turn, tells one about friars. This really begins right away with the, I would say, facetious and amusing Quasi-parody of the Knight's Tale by the Miller. There's not a relation, not a personal relationship between the Miller and the, and the Knight, but there is a relationship between those two tales that you will see. But immediately, because the subject matter of the Miller's Tale has a character who is a carpenter, the Reeve, who is a carpenter, takes this very personally and tells a dirty story about somebody, uh, who uh, is a Miller, and so on and so forth. Now, the third level, of course, or the third thing I began to talk about last time, and that is a very articulate body of what I'll call critical theory that Chaucer introduces at the very end of the prologue and that introduces such key concepts as sentence and solace, uh, earnest and game, concepts that are going to uh, control a lot of the poem. But I have quite a bit to tell you about the General prologue, so I want to get to the uh, handout. In ancient, as in medieval rhetoric, the initial position is one of great intellectual emphasis. So this is the reason <coughs> that that long sentence, those 18 lines, with which the Canterbury Tales begin and for which you will be responsible no later than next Tuesday, that is the reason that you get all this florid language in there. When Zephyrus ache with his sweat of breath and spirit hath in every holt and hay the tall and dracropath, and so on. That is not your ordinary colloquial Middle English. We know that Chaucer is quite capable of the most convincing kind of colloquial language or the low style, but the low style would be entirely inappropriate for this initial rhetorical moment. This represents in Chaucer's poem uh, the place of a uh, invocation to the muses, really, and there is implicit a sort of uh, invocation uh, uh, in these in these opening lines. This is the arma virumque cano, or sing muse of the man, and that sort of thing. But it also introduces, immediately, a number of themes that we ought to pay attention to. There's a spring setting, when that april, with his shorter, so to the draught, marches marches, to the rota. And we find that the sun, half in his, the ram, his half a course he run, in small followers mocking melodia. It is springtime. The sap is rising. The uh, leaves are turning uh, green. The birds are twittering. It's a very vivacious scene and one that suggests, at a natural level, uh, renewal in the liturgical calendar. We are coming to the end of a penitential season, that penitential season of Lent, which uh, introduces the greatest festival of the Christian year, uh, the festival of Easter, which is, in Christian teaching, the memorial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from death to life. So there is, in that liturgical reenactment, a religious parallel to what we see happening in spring uh, every year anyway, that is the uh, re- renewal and rebirth. But since... Lent is there, and in fact, Lent is the old Middle English word for spring. There's a famous uh, medieval uh, lyric that starts, Lenten is come with louv to tune," in which the word lenten, Lent simply means spring. Spring has arrived, but because of the liturgical placement of this extended time of penitence, which I'm going to say a word of, uh, more about in a minute when we, when we get to the idea of the exodus, because of that... The theme of penance is also, as it were, calendrically and geographically present in these opening lines. Now, I had one or two emails after my last lecture, which, although very polite, seemed to suggest that maybe I was less than pellucidly clear on the meaning of the strange picture and the 29 degrees turning to 28 feet, turning to 12 feet. That is a little numerological emblem of, as it were, redemption or amelioration. That is, things are numerologically bad when you have that 29-degree angle. They're going to get very good when you get the 28-degree angle. The ratio of one to two, the perfect ratio, Pythagorean theory, the ratio of the incarnation and all sorts of other stuff, will, we think, be achieved at some moment just outside the frame of the poem when the sun sets a little more and the pilgrims are actually at the gates of Canterbury. So there is this hint or this hope of a kind of moral reformation, not merely of the individual pilgrims on the pilgrimage, and God knows most of them are in grievous need of uh, sort of moral uh, uh, betterment, but that in some way the whole uh, sick, sorry, fallen world may find the kind of cyclical redemption that we see uh, in the uh, spring imagery at the very beginning. So that's quite a lot to get into the beginning. One other theme that is very much here is of course that of plenitude and fructification, that is new things coming to life and to birth. <clears throat> This idea of increasing and multiplying and, uh, is, is a big one. The wife of Bath is going to tell us, you know, I'm not too much of a Bible reader. Actually, she is the greatest of all the exegetes in a highly exegetical poem, so I don't believe her. But she says, there is one text I can understand. Genesis 128, increase and multiply that gentle text. Well, Coney understand it. She says, well, she understands it the way, uh, you know, a dog understands metaphysics, really. I mean, she she has a very literal attitude toward it, and all the exegetes are going to tell you, oh, no, you know, under the old law, that's the way it was. But this, The pardoner who is sterile in the most literal sense. He says, etrohi were a gilding or a mare. He actually has no colions." for Harry Bailey to grab in his hand and cut off. He gets so mad and he, he wants to do that. He would, he had the colliens in the hand. But well, cut of him. He will help them carry. They shall be shreened in a hog is turd. Now, that's the way you have to talk to a partner, I'm afraid. But he can't do it because he doesn't have... In, in his, he is supposedly within the... ...in whose office it is to go out and increase and multiply... The virtues within the members of the church. So there's this bitter irony that runs uh, throughout uh, Chaucer's, uh, throughout Chaucer's treatment of, of this theme. Let me anticipate one thing that always comes up with Chaucer, and when I talk about stuff like this, and that is Chaucer's own religious attitude. Chaucer did not leave a letter in a bottle, you know, for me. And I've never met Chaucer, and I don't have any you know, person to Chaucer. I don't know what his own religious attitudes were, but I know that he accepts positively as of this poem. I will call the humanistic Catholicism uh, of the 14th century. Now, what this means is that when you find ecclesiastical satire in the poem, it is not satire that comes from somebody who is uh, disdainful of the church and despises. so tough on bad churchmen. Is it because he thinks they're a terrible hypocrite and that they are soiling an institution that is uh, intrinsically a sacred uh, a sacred. Inst- it is the kind of uh, uh, satire that you get from conservative critic, rather than from uh, a, radical, uh, a radical critic. Well, we're often told that we have a complete cross-section of 14th century British society on this pilgrimage. And a superficial reading of the prologue might suggest that that is the case. This is very, very far from it. I reckon that at least 80% of the British population at this time would have been what we call peasants. Uh, there are a few peasants on the pilgrimage. The plowman, who is the brother of the parish priest, this would also imply that the parish priest comes from that kind of a background. This was not too uncommon, incidentally. There were uh, at least two of the great archbishops of Canterbury of the 14th century who came from the humble uh, kind of uh, origins. But as a matter of fact, it's a pretty thoroughly middle to upper class group when we look at it with church men and church women wildly overrepresented. That is, you've got a friar, you've got the pardoner, you've got a monk, you've got a prioress, you've got other uh, religious uh, uh, figures, the clerk who is studying for uh, a, cl- a clerical position. A very large number of the people on the pilgrimage have a formal association with the church, which is exploited, uh, in the presentation of their, team and their, uh, and their characters. But there are a lot of secular people as well. There is the knight, there's Harry Bailey, he gets named Harry Bailey later in the poem. That's the bartender who is the host and setting up the whole, uh, contest. There's a merchant, there's a shipman, uh, and uh, and so on. So you get the impression of this uh, all the various uh, kinds of people that you might have met in 14th century England. The mode of presentation of these pilgrims is not. I don't think I could do this, but it is not what we would call realistic. Chaucer is dealing with what today we would call stereotypes and what he would call simply types a printer, and I'm interested in printing history, and this makes me uh, rather interested in the current status of the word stereotype. Stereotype is a very bad word. Um, you can't talk about people that way because you are making a stereotype. Well, this implies a kind of radical individuality where there're not even two people in the world who both have two eyes or something of Chaucer looks at it a very different way he looks at it in terms uh in classical who out- a doctrine of literary decorum now what this this is associated also with the humors theory of personality uh, what ben Johnson, who's a great believer in this says is if you present a soldier in a play, make sure is a braggart off-loud that he drinks too much. Now, that's a stereotype. There probably are some teetotalers. Uh, there are uh, soldiers who spend all their time reading the... But nonetheless, for dramatic purposes, if you're going to... Here you have to present a gloriosis. gloriosus. That is the, t- that we're dealing with. Now, in the Middle Ages, uh, they had within society what they called the estates. The three class, the pig, I've mentioned this before, the picture on the front cover of your Riverside Chaucer is a picture of the three principal estates of medieval society. You have peasants whose job it is to work for you And if there was a little caption that went with this picture, the peasant would be saying, I work for you. There's a knight armed okay and he says I fight for you and there would be a priest or a clerical figure who says, I pray for you Now you've got to remember but until very recently in Western history the idea that uh, the, the the idea was, that those people who are professional religious, that is who are, as it were, paid to pray for us, are doing a very important uh, social service. They have a job uh, in uh, in uh, society. Now, uh, Chaucer doesn't just deal with these three estates, but he gives us, as it were, stereotypes of all different kinds of people. The doctor, who is uh, greedy and avaricious and materialistic. That's the way doctors are in medieval satirical literature. Now, on the handout, I draw your attention to a very illuminating book, which, of which there are multiple copies in the uh, reserve reading room, by Jill Mann, Chaucer and Medieval Estates Satire. The genre of the general prologue, which presents a, di- a number of different people from a stereotypical point of view, and in satirical mode is uh, one that you will find elsewhere. So that's sort of one way of looking at the way he presents it. Now, an idea that is Chaucer's own, I don't mean exclusively his, but which he takes and makes a central element of the Canterbury Tales, is the relationship between this pilgrimage, which is about sixty miles from London to Canterbury, uh, the relationship between this pilgrimage and what was thought of in medieval thought as the pilgrimage <coughs> par excellence, and that is the Exodus. The Exodus of the captive Hebrews kept captive in Egypt by Pharaoh made to work there as his slaves in the brick factories and so on, their journey to liberation, first through the Red Sea, then through the Sinai Peninsula, and finally into the promised land of Zion. Now, this image, I am convinced, is the basic plot of Western comic literature, the Exodus uh, plot. And it isn't just limited to the Middle Ages. Uh, Martin Luther King, in his most famous public oration, the I Have a Dream speech, takes his basic image as the image of the exodus. So that any time you're leaving captivity in Egypt to freedom in Zion, you are gaining a, yes, political freedom, but in the Middle Ages, in the spiritual interpretation of this, you were moving from captivity in sin to liberation in grace. You were moving from darkness to light. You were moving from death to life. And in fact, both in the baptismal service uh, of, the, of the church and the burial service of the church, this metaphor uh, of the exodus is uh, very widely used. Now, under these circumstances, it's not a bad idea to remind yourself of some of the basic features of the Exodus. The Exodus had a great leader. That leader was Moses, and he was wonderful at uh, performing all sorts of, uh, of uh, magical deeds and, and, and so on, but he wasn't a very good speaker. So his brother, Aaron, the chief priest, worked in association with him. Aaron had an extraordinary stick or rod that's the title of one of the D.H. Lawrence novels. And if you don't know what he's referring to, you won't understand what he's talking about in the novel, Aaron's Rod. You know, and they get over there in the dry desert and they don't have any water. They take the rod and they hit the stone and out comes uh, out comes water and so on. Now, we would expect, we would hope that the leader of this pilgrimage is going to be some kind of a Moses or an Aaron or a, a combination of the two. The closest candidate is the good parson. He, it says, does go around carrying with him everywhere his staff, but he's so hostile to the entire enterprise, remember, that when we get to the end of the poem, he refuses to tell a tale. He says, I'm not going to indulge in this sinful poetry. I'm going to give you the straight stuff, a prose sermon on the seven deadly sins. So I would say he's eliminated. The actual leader of the pilgrimage is the drunken miller playing the bagpipes. That's not very prepossessing either. But the two guys who look most to me like Moses and Aaron, on account of the stick that they share together in a most suspicious manner, as I will point out uh, later, are the most horrible duo in the whole thing, namely the pardoner and the sumner. But I think Chaucer is playing with this idea. For example, on the uh, pilgrimage, you may remember that uh, Moses has to stop, uh, call a coffee break while he goes up and gets Ten Commandments. And, you know, and he's not gone for about ten minutes before all these people start rusting and, and uh, say, you know, what we need to make is a great big idol. Let's make a golden calf. You know? And the line in the Bible is, the people, first they have a big dinner before they do this, and then inflamed by food and wine, they fall into idolatry. The people sat down to eat and drink, but they rose up to play. Now, that line is quoted almost verbatim, a clear reference to it, uh, for the meal that Harry Bailey has just before the pilgrims set out. That is, they sit down and have a good meal, then they rise up to play, their play, presumably, being the pilgrimage and the tales that they're going to tell uh, on the uh, on, on 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 the pilgrimage. Now Dante, uh, Dante, uh, who is the greatest of these pilgrimage writers in a way, in his Divine Comedy, presents us with a pilgrimage that literally is from hell to heaven, from this life to the next life. It starts in literal darkness, the guy's lost in a dark wood and so on, ends up in the sea of light uh, of the beatific uh, of the beatific vision. When he went to describe that poem to a friend of his, Con Grande de la Scala, he said, In order to my under, to understand my poem, you have to read that psalm in Exitu Israel de Egypto in, in the in the Middle Ages, the Psalms had the names of the opening lines uh, in uh, Latin, and this is uh, 113, 114, depending if you're going to the Vulgate or the, the the. It it recapitulates the history of the Exodus and what Don the this little plot of the Exodus. I'm going to show you some more stuff in a minute that will I think be interesting uh, on uh, on that now pilgrimage is of course a penitential activity the lenten season the 40 days and nights of lent among other things that they memorialized were the 40 years spent wandering in the desert also the 40 days that christ uh, retired to the desert to be t- uh, tempted of the devil Theoretically, the pilgrimage is a penitential action, but we're going to see everywhere how this is uh, ironized. Very few of the pilgrims seem to have anything like uh, a pure religious motive, even those whose, whose motives may be good uh, don't uh, carry it out uh, very well. The worst, I would say, I think you will agree with this, the worst of all the pilgrims, the one of whom we may say he's guilty of the sin against the Holy Spirit and is beyond any redemption is the horrible pardoner. The pardoner who knows the truth, knows the religious truth, but doesn't give a damn, but who is extraordinarily skilled, extraordinarily skilled at using his rhetorical gifts in order to euchre money out of people uh, who are seeking uh, spiritual gifts and spiritual salvation. I don't know who was going to win the Harry Bailey Prize. I think that was one of the jokes that Chaucer was kind of preparing for us, and we were all supposed to be faked out at the end. But, when you read all these tales, I think you're going to say that one of the very best is the Pardoner's Tale. There's no question. And the Pardoner's Tale, which, like one other tale, like the Wife of Bath's Tale, is equal dramatic presentation of the teller, oh, both of those tales, the partner, very, very long prologues, that is, in which the teller tells you, I'm about to tell you a tale, and what the partner says is, I'm going to give you an example of the sermon that I give to these yokels in every town, and I get more money. Every time I give this sermon, then this good priest here is going to get in six months, because I'm so, this is his, the way he judged how to be, how to be a, a good preacher. But there's absolutely no question that he is good. He is very good. And I one of the anxieties, or possible anxieties, that has to be bothering Chaucer, that has to be bothering any writer or reader who really does think that literature matters, that literature has the power to reach out and change you either for good or the anxiety that such a person has is for the moral responsibility that lies behind his work. So that you're gonna see there's a certain, in a certain sense, Chaucer <laughs> is looking over his shoulder at that Pardner. Pardner's the best poet by any means on the, uh, on the whole uh, pilgrimage, but his uh, motive are absolutely vile. I, I note there that uh, there's a famous article by the Yale Chaucerian called Chaucer's Three Ps. That's playing with the play that's three Ps. But his three Ps are the pardoner, retails, in Troilus. What a pander is. Uh, we've taken our word from this character. He's a pimp, a sexual go-between. And he certainly is in that play. The pardon, uh, Pandarus, and his third P is the poet. Because, of course, it is the job of a poet to capture you, to make you move in a certain, manipulate your mind and your emotion. Live, which Geoffrey Chaucer uh, uh, lived. Where he believes there is a kind of, uh, moral responsibility, uh, for, uh, for, for this. Now I said a little bit about the, what I'm calling the, 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 uh, literary, uh, theory at the, at the end of the, uh, prologue. Those lines that I pointed you to will reward the closest, uh, possible reading. Because in saying that if I didn't make this up, I would be guilty of writing fiction. Chaucer is uh, giving uh, a, a paradox, uh, a semantic antinomy as they were called in the, in the, in the Middle Ages. A- and these are self-destructive sentences. Uh, modern philosophers are very interested in this kind of a sentence and nobody really knows how to explain it. The most famous of them is the so-called Cretan liar paradox, uh, of which there is an echo, as I've given you on the sheet, in one of the epistles of St. Paul. In its most blatant form, the liar paradox is this, I always lie, or this statement is a lie. Now, if you analyze that, you see that you immediately run into a philosophical problem. If I always lie, I am lying now. But if I am lying now, that can only mean that it is not true that I always lie. Therefore, I am telling the truth. This statement is a lie. If this is a lie, it cannot be true that it is a lie. You see the problem, okay? Now, as I say, the greatest minds in 1879 Hall cannot uh, uh, crack this one, so don't expect me to uh, do it uh, for you. But they love this kind of thing in, in the Middle Ages. Uh, and it has to do, really, with certain kinds of self-reflexive, uh, certain kind of self-reflexive uh, statement. This is the kind of implied statement that I see at the end of the Canterbury Tales. And if you, you say this fiction is true, or this truth is uh, fiction, the only way I can be true is what Chaucer seems to be saying, is uh, by being uh, by indulging in uh, fiction. And if you twist some of these words, he says, "Don't hold it against me." For example, although he plainly speak in this mater, p l e y n l y. Now, what does plainly mean? We don't know. We can't tell whether the word comes from plenus. Uh, meaning full, the whole thing, the complete truth about something, or planus, which gives us the modern word plain, as in the great plain, flat, just the bare, those two words really mean almost opposite things. You can't tell which one he means when he says he's going to speak plainly. I talked about feina and Fienda last time. He also says, uh, read, read Plato, whoever can read him, and you'll see that he says, The word be the cousin to the thing. The word and the cousin, the word and the thing must be cousins. Now the word cousin comes from cone plus sanguinis, that is, of one blood. Your cousin is of your own blood. But if you've read or even heard Fleming talk about uh, St. Augustine's De Doctrina Christiana, you know that all words are uh radically arbitrary and conventional how can a word be the cousin to a deed? How can there be an absolutely appropriate word for uh, a, a uh, thing? You know for many many years I thought that language was more or less natural and then I went to France and I saw a guy hit his thumb uh, with a hammer and you know what he said what he, uh, <laughs> I mean the publishable thing he said oof you know, can you imagine you're supposed to say ow or ouch that's what you say when you, you hit your thumb with a hammer or you say something unpublishable. but in France you say oof that is it's culturally constructed even these uh, even these things that we think are so spontaneous and rooted in nature and all, 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 all that all, all that kind of thing and Chaucer is very much aware of this and he is playing with... Some of these, uh, s- some of these ideas. Now, so much for the sort of macro background. How does Chaucer actually go about, uh, uh constructing his uh, poetry? Now for many years, uh, I, who am no artist, uh, used to try to give this example by drawing it up on the board myself. But now I have turned to electronic aids. And you will notice that there is a painting in the lower left-hand part of your uh, handout, and its title is The Iconographic Method. Now, I want you to tell me, I want somebody in this room to tell me what the meaning of that painting is. I need help right now with this. What is the meaning of this painting? Real loud. Is it the George? Jo- George Washington, she said, now, are you a relative? Are you a consiguiness with me? No, you're not. Have I paid you money? Did I alert you to this? No. Uh, she is simply a very intelligent person who looks at this wonderful painting, if I say so myself, and spontaneously says, George Washington. I have to thank you very much for this and, and sigh a sigh of relief. Uh, the... Uh, Cultural illiteracy is expanding at such a rate in this country that I thought I was going to have to retire, you know, um, that by the time I retired, the efficacy of this particular example would have worn out. But there's one person anyway who sees that it's George George Washington. If you can see why this picture has to mean George Washington, you understand practically everything you need to know about medieval and Renaissance art. What you see in this picture is a hatchet, a bough of cherries, and that other thing is a three-cornered hat, which is supposed to invoke for you the idea of colonial America. There's one down here on the way to Wilson College. There's a stone bench with a stone three-cornered hat on it. You know, time I'd come by. I think, God, what a great constitution we have, you know, and, 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 and stuff like this. Now, what is all this about? George Washington, the father of our nation, our first uh, president, uh, was very very greatly admired uh, in his own time and in the early 19th century, and many legends were spread about him. And one of the legends was this: that when George Washington was a very young child, about 6 years old, his father imported from England a cherry sapling that would have been a hard expensive thing to do, planted it and at the same time, foolish father that he was, he gave little George Washington a hatchet. Well, the kid did what you would expect him to do. Eventually he went around experimenting with the hatchet and he cut down the cherry tree. Later on, his father found this uh, act of wanton vandalism and he said, who cut down the cherry tree? And you know what George Washington said? said, Father, I cannot tell a lie. I did it with my little hatchet. Now that is an emblem of George Washington. It's a perfect kind of medieval emblem for the following reasons. We don't know where this story came from. It first appears in about 1830, but it clearly was some sort of oral legend or urban legend. The second thing is, it's almost certainly untrue as a historical fact. I mean, it just doesn't really make very much sense. The third thing about it is, it has a very clear moral message. Now, what is it? The moral message is that the kind of person who would be or should be or might be the president of the United States is the kind of person who will not or would not tell a lie. Now, see, now these days we get, it's so sad to me that we get these giggles. I mean, when I was a kid going through school, that is what we believed about the president. The president would not tell a lie. Certainly he wouldn't do it for 60 million people on television, you know, sort of at one time. So here's a moral content to a legend. Uh, and if you don't, if you didn't get it, and I think there probably were some people in here who didn't get it, that simply means you never heard the story or... The place that you see this image nowadays is mainly with regard to Washington Day sales, President's Day sales and, and, and that kind of thing. But there are all sorts of these secular icons. Now notice, I got this off Google, but even if we could get Jan van Eyck or Pablo Picasso or the greatest artist in the world to come in and paint this. And they painted cherries so red and delicious that you felt you wanted to reach into the canvas and bite one or an act so keen that you feared to run your finger along the edge of it, lest it draw blood, even if you had an artist of that quality, if you don't see that it means George Washington, you're not getting it, okay? Now, the trouble with uh, literary historians, literary critics, as opposed to art critics, is that literary critics will never deny that they know what a work of art is about, okay? Now, you can go over to the art museum and you'll see these weird paintings, you know, and nobody knows what they're about. And this little sign that says, Renaissance Allegory. That's the way an art historian says, I have no idea what this is about. <laughs> have you ever picked up, however, an essay assigned to you by a professor about a Conrad novel that begins, I've got no idea, above a hog, what this book is about. Now, it still is possible to talk about the formal elements of the composition and so on without realizing what it's, quote, about. Go show this to an Eskimo. It will be meaningless. It's a culture-bound thing. But this is the way that Chaucer's work art, uh, art works. And I, I call his method the iconographic method because it is uh, what iconography means. I- iconography in art history means two things, as you probably know, neutrally. It means simply the content of a painting. There's a painting with a bald man holding keys. That's the, the iconography of Saint Peter. Uh, the other meaning of it is the symbolic system uh, of the art language itself. Iconography, uh, uh, picture, uh, picture writing. That's like the icons on your uh, on your uh, on your computer. Now, of course, the great source for in the hatchets, in Chaucer's world, the first great source is the Bible. Even in the 18th century, the great artist, visual artist and poet, William Blake, could say, the Bible is the great code of art, meaning this is where we get our big images for art. Now, the pilgrimage, I've already told you the pilgrimage is an icon, as it were, uh, taken out of the Bible, but this is not the only one by any means. There were saints' legends, which are in very many ways parallel to the, this kind of story, secular story about George uh, Washington, and there are there are a, num- number of other, uh, a, a number of other a number of other examples. Let's take a look at one or two of these uh, in the uh, in in our text. For example, the per, uh, the per, uh, the person of a tune on page. Uh, 31. Uh, Chaucer learns very easily, very soon what, Jeff, what Milton was to learn later. And it basically is this. Nasty is much more interesting than nice. Chaucer is great at presenting us with really foul characters because the cherry tree and hatchet uh, factor is so very, very large. What can you say about somebody uh, who is perfect? You can say, hey, was a very pr- connect, you know, one of the lamest lines uh, in uh, world literature. Uh, or you can say, a good man was there of religion, he was a poor person of a tune, but rich, he was, of holy thought and work. He was also a learned man, a clerk, that Christ's gospel truly would preach. Well, how do we know he's a good person, but linked here to the Bible simply by saying, well, he preaches the gospel, uh, he follows the, uh, uh, the advice of it himself, uh, first he, uh, wrought and then he taught. He, you know, so he's a very, uh, he's a very good guy. But there are not too many people who are good guys. Take a look at the, uh, wife of Bath for uh, a second. She's on page 30 and 31. One tip that I'll give you in trying to figure out the uh, the uh, moral character of the pilgrim is what do they love? Almost every one of, almost all the time, Chaucer tells it is, tells it's what they love, of the doctor. For gold in physic is cordial, therefore he loved gold in special. Or he loved a roast swan better than any other kind of food and so on. Well, here is uh, the wife of Bath, A good wife was there of of Bath, but she was somewhat deaf and that was Scaff. Uh, now it starts getting heavy down when he describes uh, uh the way she makes her offering in church. In all the parish weefn was there known that to the offering be she should a gone, and if there did certain so wroth was hay, that he was root of all she was root of all charity. Get the hell out of here! Yeah. So I, uh, I once had the following experience. that is very wife of uh, bath. I I, uh, I pulled up behind a pickup truck that was stopped at a at a stop sign or a light, and it said it had a bumper sticker that said "Honk if you love Jesus." Well, I, I thought, what the hell? I honked. Somebody immediately leaped out. Of his you see, you son of a bitch! Can't you see it's a red light? You see. Now this is the. Uh, this is the kind of statement that you're getting about the wife of Bath there she is root of all the charity if anybody beats her to making her offering at the mass it's one of those statements that you don't quite understand until you think about it now what the great Dryden said about Chaucer Dryden the 17th century about his satire we have here no slovenly butchering of a man this kind of thing he says rather you have that rapier like stroke but leaves the head still in its stanchions there on the neck until the guy scratches his head and then the head falls off. And you realize he's been decapitated. And that's the kind of thing that you have with the, uh, with, with the wife of, ba- uh, of Bath. Uh, right, she's a great pilgrimage. You we'll spend more time with her. But at the very end it says, of remedies of love she knew par chance, for she could of that art, the old adanza. Now, The Remedies of Love is the title of a book of Ovid, you know, and it's, it has about as much cultural specificity as uh, uh, Hamlet or Rook Homeward Angel, uh, something of, of, of that sort. This makes you wonder what it means that she could of that art, the old Adansa. I'm afraid it was not the Virginia reel that she had mastered, and the old Adansa probably means something else, and we're going to have to uh, kind of look, uh, look, look into that. Uh, how about the, oh, here's one of my, I really like this, this is Sumner's Halitosis. Page 33. As Sumner was there with us in that plaza that had a fear red cherry bin his fossa, uh, uh, for salsaflame he was, with A and Narwa, as hawk was and lecherous as a sparwa. I guess, you know, I hadn't really noticed that about sparrows, but once you see it, you, you'll never uh, forget it with skulled brows black and peeled beard of his visage of children were fared People wouldn't say, watch out of the boogeyman, I'll get you. They'd say, watch out of the sumner, I'll get you. Their nass quicksilver, the targe, the brimstone, brass, sarus, the oil of tartarone, no ointment that wrote a cleanse in beta, that him meet helping of their welkes, uh, nor of the canabas sitting on his cheek as Well, you know, it's pretty unpleasant. Uh, uh, he's got a bad... Uh, uh... acne problems you know that uh, uh, manifests externally probably an inner spiritual uh... Problem. well love it eat garlic onions and ache lakas. say what you know you could say well maybe he just had to have a rhyme for chakas, and there are not many things that rhyme with chakas, but leikas eat garlic onions and leeks now you ought to read the criticism on this because it is a gas you know uh, if you, your uh, criticism on cherry trees and hatchets, for that matter. You know what cherry means, you know. You know, you know, what, a, you know, what, you know what that hatchet is. Now, you know, can do a Freudian reading of almost anything, a Freudian reading of almost anything you want. But the, the, the reading of the uh, partner is great, you know. The reason like onions and leeks is, you know, because he's the kind of person who would have uh, bad breath because he has a kind of spiritual halitosis well you know maybe that is true but this is a cherry tree or perhaps a hatchet straight out of the bible straight out of the story of the exodus and straight out of the story of human nature because very quickly after the hebrew got across the red sea now look here's what god did for these people they were all slaves under Egypt. He rises, raises up for them a mighty savior, Moses. They walk through the Red Sea. It parts for them. They kind of walk by, don't even get their feet wet. When Pharaoh comes after him, it closes over. He kills all of Pharaoh's army. That's doing pretty good. They get over in the Sinai desert. They don't have anything to drink. Whap, he hits the rock with his stick. Out comes all this Perrier water. They don't have anything to drink. He rains down manna. You know, from heaven now we, know, we don't know exactly what that was but it was you know sort of like wonder bread <laughs> something of this sort within three days you know what these Hebrew children were saying what's for dinner oh come on not manna again you know, God we can tie this manna and you know what they say take us back to Egypt where we had all that good garlic onions and leeks that's good slave food and that's what human nature is. Human nature can't. This is what the biblical interpretation of this is. Human nature, you know, can't stand the gift of the grace of the pure water, and, the, and the, so this is why uh, the part. This is why the son uh, likes garlic, onions, and leeks. I don't have time to do the prior rest, uh to work on the priorist right now. Right now. Uh, you'll be reading some of these uh, uh, later. This doesn't mean that everything in Chaucer is symbolic, allegorical, or iconographic. But as a method, it is a controlling uh, device. And unfortunately, see, if you don't know the story of George Washington and in the, in the Cherry Tree, you're at a huge disadvantage in telling me what that painting is about. And this is the way that so much medieval and Renaissance art works. That's what makes it so fun trying to find out about cherry trees and hatchets.